2 Kings chapter 23, if you'll turn there with me, last time together we didn't quite get out of chapter 23 together, as you can tell we're kind of wrapping up now the end of our study in 2 Kings, as we're watching now at this point the decline of the southern kingdom of Israel, what we know as Judah, we watched the fall of the northern kingdom as they were taken captive by the Assyrians, who were the dominating world power uh, during the time of around 722 or so BC. That was when the Assyrian Empire really conquered and took over the northern kingdom of what uh, is referred to as Israel. And now at this point, it seems about another 200-year span, Judah, the southern kingdom, was able to hold out. Uh, They had a little bit more godliness and a little bit more of some of the good kings in the southern kingdom of Israel, which allowed them to kind of last a little longer. But ultimately, we'll see now they will be conquered and go into captivity into Babylon, the next world empire that will come on the scene really because they repeated the same sins as their brothers and sisters up in the northern kingdom of Israel. They ultimately began to just digress morally and spiritually and entered into a lot of the same practices, the idolatry, their immoral practices, neglecting obedience to the word of God. And we're watching now this decline. In fact, last time together, we came to King Josiah, who we're going to continue to wrap up looking at in our time now, which really was the last good or godly king that they had. After Josiah, who uh, was their last good and godly king, there's just a few quick reigns of, again, further men who were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and then ultimately the kingdom will come to a closure as they're fully conquered. Josiah, remember, we saw was this unique young man who, despite the fact that he had a very ungodly upbringing, was raised in darkness. Uh, He didn't get a good shot at life. Uh, He didn't have the best father. He didn't have the best uh, grandfather. He honestly grew up in a family experience of, you could very fairly say, just a poor example as a father, a poor example as a grandfather, a lot of ungodliness and just rotten things he was exposed to. But yet Josiah at eight years old becomes king and somewhere around 16 years old his heart just turns towards the Lord and he just begins to demonstrate a personal love for the Lord and a desire to want to live different than his father lived and the patterns he learned from his father he demonstrates that he wants to break the chain that he's going to choose to live in the ways of God himself and he's going to chart a whole different course and he becomes one of the most good and godly kings that the southern kingdom of Israel ever sees and just as a young man just in his teenage years his heart turns to the Lord, he begins to lead incredible reforms. He begins to clean out the temple of God. Remember, they rediscover the word of God. They find the law of the Lord in the house of God, and he reads it, and his heart is gripped with conviction, and he begins to want to share it with the people. He began just cleansing a lot of the idolatry and the filth and the immoral practices that were happening in the land. So Josiah, as a king now, at this point, somewhere in his 20s, is leading incredible reforms. And I think the proper word is reform and not revival. 
because King Josiah, as a uh, a governmental leader, uh, was not being used by God to bring a spiritual revival or a spiritual awakening. If that were the case, God would have ultimately, I believe, had mercy upon Judah. And I believe if that was genuine, and we'll talk about that, I think there would have been a lot more of the people themselves going in that direction. What Josiah is, is he is someone who came to the throne, who had a heart for the Lord himself, and he wanted to live in righteous ways, and he used his power and his position, and I'm thankful for those who would do that, to say, while I'm in authority, I'm going to implement some righteous practices. While I'm in authority, I'm going to turn the nation towards that which is moral, that which is God-fearing, that which is righteous. And look, whether the people comply because they have to or not, at the end of the day, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. So nothing can ever go wrong when somebody's at least trying from a legislative standpoint, whether a, a mayor of a city or a governor of a state or a president of a country or a king of a nation saying, you know what, while I'm in charge, I'm going to try and purge filth and get rid of what's immoral and ungodly, and I'm going to try and institute some of what's good and righteous and and moral and God-honoring in the nation. And so we see Josiah making an effort to do that for the stent that he was reigning. Uh, it told us as we left off last time there in chapter 23 together uh, that he was going through, well, look back in verse 19, we'll kind of pick it up there, chapter 23. Uh, it says, Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. So notice he didn't just uh, legislate in a way where he brought godliness and morality in the southern kingdom. It was even expanding up into the north, the area of Samaria, where the kings of Israel had made these things to provoke the Lord to anger, and he did to them according to the deeds that had been done in Bethel. Verse 20 says, he executed all the priests of the high places, the pagan practices and worship, he executed and put to death all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars, and then he burned men's bones on them. And he returned to Jerusalem. So they have burning bones on the altar was the, the purpose of defiling them. Uh, because burning bones or that which was of death would defile something and then the people would no longer want to uh, engage in or participate or practice with those things because they felt by death and bones those things were defiled. But again, you, you look at the, again, the uh, radical measures he's taking, verse 20, it says he actually was putting to death these false high priests. He was putting to death those who were false spiritual leaders and who would lead the people astray to worship other things and other gods than the one true and living God himself. Now understand, we may look at that and think, wow, that's really severe. But according to Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 13, other places, the word of God said that if someone came on the scene as a false leader spiritually and would turn God's people away from him, that that was a capital crime because God viewed that like spiritual kidnapping. That these individuals are causing my people to turn away from me, to worship other things, to turn towards other gods, and to be led away from me. And God saw that like spiritual kidnapping, like somebody was kidnapping his children and taking them hostage and away from him. And God saw that in a very severe manner. So really what he's doing here, honestly, is just in compliance and obedience with the word of God. Uh, and he's carrying out the word of God with real 
sincerity, with, with a real serious and grave attitude, he's being very radical in his righteous endeavors to obey the word of God. So he executes these false priests in the high places who would lead people astray. Then verse 21, after, again, and we read a lot of it last time in the chapter, after a cleansing and a purging of what's not good and what's immoral and unrighteous, he now seeks to institute what is good and what is righteous. Verse 21 says, Then the king commanded all the people saying keep the passover to the lord your god as it is written notice again in the book of the covenant such a passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged israel nor in all the days of the kings of israel and the kings of judah but in the 18th year of king josiah which tells us again this was when he when he was 26 years old he came to the throne at eight so 18 years into his reign he'd be 26 so again he's a 26 year old young man at this time and instituting these kind of practices to rid the nation of what's filthy and immoral and to establish and interject that which is good and pleasing to god encouraging the people in fact verse 21 says commanding the people to celebrate the Passover feast to the Lord. Remember the Passover feast of the Lord that he's telling them to keep there in verse 21 as is written in the book of the covenant. That is the oldest of all the feasts that exist in Israel. Remember, there are about seven or so feasts, three of them particularly, three feasts were mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They were obligatory feasts three times a year, particularly that all Jewish males 20 years old and older were responsible to be there in Jerusalem to participate and to engage in these feasts. If they wanted to bring their families along, that was encouraged, but the males were required at 20 years old and above three times a year. I like this, to disengage from their fields, from their activities, from whatever else they were doing, and three times a year to go and to honor God, to reflect upon God's ways and, and what God had done for them, and to spend time in worship. I'll tell you, I think that really probably did something for the, the spiritual condition of the households to those who actually obeyed that just went as the spiritual leaders in their homes and sought God and, and Passover, Exodus 12, that was instituted, was the first of all the feasts that was instituted. Remember, Passover was basically the feast that was instituted to commemorate God's deliverance of them out of Egypt. Remember when they were slaves in Egypt and ultimately God sent Moses to them as a deliverer, a picture and a type of Jesus. Again, Egypt is a type of the world and they were slaves and in bondage, like we're enslaved and bondaged in sin. And, and God sent Moses to them to bring them out as a deliverer. And remember, after the plagues came and that whole process, the last of the plagues was the death angel. Remember, it came through the area of Egypt there and put to death all the first born and remember god told his people this is what i want you to do i want you to take a lamb and i want you to put that lamb to death and i want you to take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorposts and the lintels of your home and then keep yourself and your families inside of the home underneath where the blood of the lamb is at and he said if you do that in trust in what I'm telling you to do, then my death angel of judgment will see the blood of the innocent lamb that was sacrificed and, and the wrath that I'm bringing upon the land will pass over 
you because you're inside that home under the blood of the Lamb. And of course, just a very beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if we're trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God passes over our lives. And so they were to commemorate this. And of course, many of the beautiful types that were there, Paul ultimately says in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover. He is the ultimate Passover fulfillment for you and I. But they were to commemorate this every year to remember God's powerful deliverance and how God had mercy upon them because it would make them appreciative towards God. It would make them thankful. God, you delivered us from slavery. We owe you our lives, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that you set us free and you got us out of bondage and slavery. And this was to root the people's hearts in appreciation towards the Lord and how he powerfully passed over them in his wrath and brought them into the fulfillment of his blessing and goodness as he took them out of Egypt. But this had been neglected and neglected and they weren't worshiping and celebrating and remembering this. And now Josiah, as he gets a copy of the word of God and he begins to read it, he says, what are we doing? We need to return to the worship of the Lord. We need to return to what God's told us to do in his word. So he, I like verse 21, the authority. He commands the people. He says, listen, we are going to, as a nation, celebrate Passover. As a nation, we're going to commemorate and remember what God has done. And very boldly, unashamedly, he didn't care about being politically correct. He didn't care about, well, well, well. no, we, this is what we're going to do. We are going to honor God as a nation. We're going to reflect upon God. We're going to institute the Passover. And it was commanded that everyone would participate. And it says, such a Passover had not been held since the days of the judges of Israel. For hundreds of years, the idea is such a Passover hadn't been held. And if you read the account in Second Chronicles 35, which we won't, it tells of the incredible extravagance that went on in this particular Passover to just really make it a wonderful expression because it had been so long since it was neglected. Well, verse 24 tells us, Moreover, Josiah also put away those who consulted mediums, that is, those who were channeling the dead, spirits, those who were spiritists, seeking familiar spirits and you know, trying to work with other spirits other than God and the household gods and idols and all the abominations. That's how God sees those things, if you're ever interested in them. All the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. Notice that, key word, that he might perform the words of the law, which are written in the book of Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. So he again now is putting away those, it says, who were mediums, spiritists, those who were engaging in these things with household gods and idols. And he's putting away the attention and the worship and those who would seek these other things to be led of those things or directed by those things. And the reason why they were being put away, it says, so that they might be able to perform what the written word of God said that they might keep obedience to the word of God that they found there in the house of the Lord. And I like this again. He's saying, look, we need to rid these things and remove these things from their control or influence over us because they will hinder us from being obedient to what's written in the word of God. So we need to get rid of these things. And look, in the same way in our lives, there are going to be certain things, I hope not, mediums and spiritists i sure hope you're not engaged in those kind of things 
And if you are, trust me, those things will hinder your spiritual life. They'll interrupt your spiritual life. You're playing with things you shouldn't be playing with. But maybe it's not those things, but there are things, listen, maybe even certain spiritual attitudes, our spirit in the sense of who our inner nature is. Maybe there are certain things in my spirit or in your spirit, attitudes, issues in our heart, wrong perspectives, things that interfere with our obedience to the written word of God. And sometimes you got to be willing to put away certain things if they're encumbrances to obedience to the word of God. Because at times there can be attitudes or perspectives or just junk going on from the flesh, the sinful nature within us that God's saying that's running interference and you're justifying your attitude or you're justifying your perspective and that's not biblical. Your attitude's unbiblical. Your attitude's not consistent with Scripture. Your perspective's not consistent with the Word of God and you're not obeying the written Word of God because of some unhealthy spiritual attitude that's inside of you. And sometimes you've got to be willing to put away those things. We've got to be willing to set aside sinful fleshly attitudes in order to perform obedience to what's written in the Word of God. Look, do not ever let anything, let me exhort you, don't let anything, any attitude in your heart that can develop any perspective or viewpoint or thinking don't let anything like that ever supersede the authority of the written word of god my favorite six word question in the entire bible in galatians it says this nevertheless what does the scripture say let that run as a filter in your life with everything because I got a lot of feelings that go on inside of me. You get a lot of, you know, you know, attitudes and perspectives and thoughts and all this stuff. You know, we're complex beings. We're mental and emotional and, and spiritual and physical. And then all this stuff goes on. And, we ha- and then we, we're trying to figure out the frequency sometimes. And, we're th- and we want to justify behaving like this or talking like that. Or d- and God says, whoa, 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 nevertheless, I don't really care how you feel. At the end of the day, God says. What does the scripture say about that? What does the scripture say? Because if you don't go by what the scripture says, then ultimately you're going to let some other influence govern and be the authority of how you respond or react or what you do or you don't do. And so I, I love this picture here, putting away those things that were hindrances so that they might perform that was written in the word of God that they found there in the house of the Lord. Verse 25 says, Now before him, that's Josiah, this very godly young king, before him, what a a statement, there was no king like him. The Holy Spirit saying this, keep in mind, this is the Holy Spirit's summarization of this young man's life. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, and how did he do it? According to all the law of Moses. How did he turn to the Lord? With all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his might? Because he did it by a complete devotion to all of the word of God. By saying, I want to obey all of the word of God, nor says, was there any king like this after him? Now, that's an impressive statement there, verse 25. I mean, that is a very encouraging, that the Holy Spirit would say of King Josiah, and that's why I say perhaps he might fare well be 
the most good and godly king that Judah, if not all Judah and Israel ever had. Because look what the Holy Spirit says of his life. No king like him before or arose after him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. Reminds us of what Jesus said, doesn't it? In the New Testament, they asked Jesus on one occasion, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? You know, 600 some commandments, they guesstimate were all in the law of Moses, different individual commands. So which one's the, the, the number one? What is the top commandment? Because if we, Lord, if we can't remember all 600, what is the most important one? Do you remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Yes, just complete devotion with all of your being to the Lord, using your, your heart to love the Lord, using your mind and your mental faculties to love the Lord, using all of your strength and all of your being to just give love and devotion to the Lord, just turning your heart completely to him in just full devotion. And so here, Josiah, this wonderful example. And again, as a very young man, th this is where he's at, at in his young 20s. This has all transpired in his late teenage years, in his early years of his 20s in his life, this stellar example of a young man. Verse 26, unfortunately, tells us, nevertheless, the Lord, despite Josiah's heart in the midst of those dark days, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah, that is against the nation itself, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also now remove Judah from my sight as I removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall not be there. So God clearly declares at this point that judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah upon the nation is inevitable. God had come to a place where judgment was inevitable, that it was going to come to pass despite the fact that they had a good king that he sought to bring some reforms in the nation for a number of years. He brought some righteousness back to the nation and to the culture. He purged some evil things. He, you know, he loved the Lord himself as an individual. But despite that, on a national level, and again, God can do things on a personal level, but it doesn't mean what's happening on the personal level ultimately means that's the same thing that's happening on a national level and how God has to deal with the nation. And at this point, the nation had crossed the line in their guilt and their rejection of God. And though their leader was wanting to turn the people back towards the Lord, apparently their hearts did not turn with him. Their hearts may have participated in the process, but their hearts weren't inclined in the same way that his was. You know, it's interesting that uh, Jeremiah, let me read to you, who was prophesying during this time, as he's prophesying in the midst of these days, the Lord said this through Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 18. God says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil then I will relent of disaster that I thought to bring upon it. So God says, if a nation is willing to turn, I'm willing to relent and to hold off disaster and judgment. Apparently, what's true is what God's saying, the nation didn't turn. They might have for a while yielded to some of the reforms, but in their hearts, they did not genuinely turn to the Lord. There wasn't genuine repentance in what they were doing. In fact, Jeremiah earlier in his same book, Jeremiah chapter 3, even alludes to that 
reality. Jeremiah 3, uh, it verse, verse 10. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 10. God says, And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with, listen, her whole heart, but in pretense. So again, God saw the hearts of the people. And he said, yeah, they may be you know, feigning to be interested and being respectful and seeming like that they're thankful for the getting rid of the evil and bringing some morality back. But God says, they didn't turn to me with their whole heart. It, it was just in pretense. It was just a show, God's saying. And look, let's, let's just be very candid. You know, it's very easy to outwardly conform to doing what's moral or righteous or nod your head to what's good. But God sees the heart. And God says it's easy for people to go through the motions, but God sees the heart. And God says it's just in pretense. It's just an outward show. So because of that, that's why here in 2 Kings chapter 23, God is saying, look, at this point, judgment is coming upon the nation. Despite Josiah's reign, judgment was already set in order and the people's hearts hadn't turned back. And God said, just like Israel in the north, I can't show partiality, God says. I'm going to have to do the same thing to remove Judah now as well. Verse 28 says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him there in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. So again, Josiah has this incredible run. I mean, just a good man, godly, loved the Lord, had a, a great time of reigning over the nation, but he didn't finish well. At the very end, the mistake that he made, which led, it seems, to what the Bible indicates, sort of a premature death, was that he allowed himself to meddle in and get involved in something that he really shouldn't. Now, you may not pick that up here from the account in Second Kings, but if you're writing your notes or in your Bible there, Second Kings chapter, or excuse me, Second Chronicles 35. What's being referred to is an event that happened around 609 BC when Pharaoh Necho, at this time, uh, just to kind of set the stage historically, at this time, the Assyrian Empire is starting to weaken. And there seems that there's a struggle with the Egyptian Empire and Babylon is sort of on the rise. And it seems that Assyria, who's beginning to lose power, Egypt, who's trying to wanting to be the next world empire, is doing everything it can to try and subdue Babylon from coming on the rise. So at this time, an event took place where it says that Pharaoh of Egypt went to the aid of the king of Assyria. And Pharaoh's thinking, if I can strengthen Assyria, we can hold off Babylon. And then ultimately Assyria will just fall and I can just step to the forefront. So they engage in a battle. And for whatever reason, we don't have all the details. Second Chronicles 35 fills in a little bit of details. Josiah at this point decides to go up and engage in the battle process. And Pharaoh, it says in Second Chronicles 35, says to him, listen, what are you doing? You're meddling in something that's not your business. You're not even a part of what's going on here. And he warns him, listen, you're meddling in an affair that God, he says that God doesn't want you to get involved in. Stay home in Judah. And he kind of says, in essence, mind your own business. 
This isn't your thing to get involved in. Just mind your own business. Don't meddle. Why do you want to go meddle in something you don't need to be involved in? You know, I don't know about you. I feel like the problems find me all the time. I'm not looking for one. Last thing I want to do is, you know, you get a little older, you start to realize, look, there's enough problems that find me anyway. I don't need to meddle in somebody else's problems. But unfortunately, Josiah pushes past that. He doesn't listen and he goes and, and he strives and this was, seems to be the weakness of Josiah's life. His one weakness for sure is he was an overzealous individual who sometimes would strive and he would engage and get involved in things that he really just shouldn't have gotten involved in. And in his overzealousness and his youthfulness, and a lot of times that comes with youthfulness, he strove and he got involved in things he shouldn't have and it ended up causing him real personal harm in his life. He ends up losing his life prematurely as the result. And he's just a great warning to us. Look, sometimes good intentions and lots of energy and zeal, that's great. But if you don't temper that, sometimes the danger, like Josiah, is, is you can start to strive and you can start to meddle in things and put your hand and your life and your personal involvement into things or situations that you got no business getting involved in. And God's just saying, just don't even get involved in that. If you don't need to get involved in it, stay out of it, God says sometimes. Uh, and here Josiah made that mistake, and it, it, this is what led ultimately to his premature death. And now the people, it says, took his son, anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. Verse 31, Jehoahaz then was 23 years old when he became king. He wasn't the eldest son. He was who the people chose to put on the throne. And he reigned just for three months in Jerusalem. So quite a short reign. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So again, we see this repeated pattern that a good and godly father does not guarantee a good and godly son. I think it increases the chances. It heightens the percentage and there's a much better chance if a son has a good and godly father and that pattern that he's going to walk in the ways that he learned and observed and he's going to be inclined to, out of respect, want to walk in the... But people have a free will. And like we've seen many times in these historical towns, sometimes you can have a really evil father and that doesn't hinder somebody from following God either because Josiah broke that mold. Josiah was the one that broke the mold the other way. My dad was everything that I know I'm not supposed to be in life. And so I'm going to follow God and do what's different. And now here, this is the opposite. This son, Jehoahaz, he had a great father. He had Josiah. He had this very good and godly example, but yet, look what it says, his throne lasts for three months because he chose in his will to do evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that the other fathers, the ungodly kings, had done. Now, Pharaoh, verse 33, Necho, put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Himoth that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and then he imposed on the land a tribute, a tax, of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Again, a talent somewhere between 75 to 100 pounds. I think I looked at it recently where a talent of gold, therefore, would probably be somewhere like around $2 million. I mean, it just kind of gives you an idea. I mean, these are some hefty tribute and taxation uh, that the uh, Pharaoh here is putting upon the people at this time. And that's just the gold, let alone 100 talents of silver. So Pharaoh Necho then made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in place of his father, Josiah. So he says, get rid of this king, <laughs> throw him in prison. And he puts his own puppet king now, who he picks, Eliakim, on the throne there in Judah, like a puppet. And he changed his name to Jehoiakim. 
And Pharaoh took Jehoaz and went to Egypt and he died there. Now, the purpose of changing the name of a king was just a way to demonstrate authority as if I have authority over your life. Again, the best way you could probably think of that is, is that typically most children, when they're born, they don't pick their name, right? Usually the, the mother and the father exercise their authority and say, you are going to be named such and such. And so this is the idea. When he changes his name, he's basically saying, I have authority over you now. You're like my child. You're like my son. And so this is the implication of why he changes the name of this king who he puts on the throne as a puppet king to Eliakim, or excuse me, to Jehoiakim. Verse 35, so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but look how he, he got what he had to pay tribute. He taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So, you know, nothing new under the sun. Hey, government's got obligations. What are we going to do? Tax the people. <laughs> I mean, we got to pay tribute. So where are we got to get the money from somewhere? So, you know, be encouraged when you complain about taxes. Uh, nothing new under the sun. It says that he exacted the silver and the gold from the people. He taxed the land so that he'd have the money to pay his foreign debts. Verse 36, so Jehoiakim, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying there it is. Make you feel better. So Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zabudah, uh, the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah, and he as well, unfortunately, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And in his days, chapter 24 says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his vassal. The idea is that he became subservient to him, a vassal king or a vassal nation is one that's subservient to another king or to another nation. So he now became a vassal to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, for three years. But then he returned, then he turned and rebelled against him. So uh, here's what's happening. At this point, we're around 605 B.C., and what's being described here is really, you might say, the first of three deportations of the southern kingdom into Babylon's control. Uh, Babylon, over about a, you know, maybe like a, you know, a 20-year period, gradually came to power and didn't conquer Judah all at once. They were very patient in their conquests. They could have probably done it all once, but here they're still kind of trying to assert themselves on the world stage. And this time around 605 BC was when Nebuchadnezzar, who was basically like the prince at this time, he was kind of co-reigning together with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, who dies around this time frame. He goes out and he has an incredible battle and success in the Battle of Karshemesh as they defeat Egypt as they're trying to vie for power, who's going to be next the world, next world empire on the stage. They defeat Egypt, thinking that they're gaining ground. They then re-engage Egypt again. At that point, uh, they actually lose the next battle, suffer some pretty heavy casualties, which sort of set back the time frame a little bit of their power to ultimately come to the rise on the world stage, which kind of delayed the process. So at this point, Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 605. He takes away just a few captives and brings them back to Israel. Here's what happens during the first deportation. This is when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you read Daniel chapter one, this is when they were taken back to Babylon at this point. 
If you read Daniel's account, he refers to it was during the reign of Jehoiakim that he and his friends were taken captive back to Babylon. So it happens in progressions. But three years into this, it says that Jehoiakim rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and that never went well. But yet at this point, he was thinking, hey, you just lost to Egypt. Maybe I can kind of throw off your ability to control me at this point. But verse 2 says, the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. In other words, what verse 2 is telling us there is even though Jehoiakim thought, hey, well, let me rebel because he seems weakened from this recent battle that Egypt had some success in against them. Maybe I can overthrow and, and keep him from controlling us. The plan of the Lord was going to unfold irregardless. And so in essence, God says, okay, if you think you can avert what I'm going to do in your life by rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, then look what verse 2 says, the Lord sent bands of Syrians and Moabites and the people of Ammon. It's almost like God says, look, I'm going to get you one way or the other. You can't escape what God's going to do in your life. Don't ever think somehow you can work an angle on God. You can't sow to the flesh, pray for crop failure. You can't think, oh, why well, did this? But, but I'm just, you know, like I'm craftier than God. I'm going to work an angle and get out of this somehow. And that never works with God. God says, you try and, you know, fine. You throw off the, think you can throw off the Babylonians. I got plenty of other avenues to still discipline you and to still get your attention. And so here, according to the word of the Lord, God's going to deal with the nation. And so he continued to weaken them according to the word of the Lord because ultimately they will be conquered as a part of God's judgment. Verse 3 says, Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them, notice, from his sight, because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for, he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord, notice, would not pardon. Again, I, I just draw your attention again. We've seen it multiple times. Notice, one of the chief characteristics that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God points us to of the decline of a nation and the final straw before God brings judgment, which is irrevocable judgment, is when a nation loses its respect for life. And when there's a lot of shedding of innocent blood, and there are multiple ways that innocent blood can be shed, when people become murderous, when they put to death you know, one another, and there's, there's no appreciation for life anymore in any capacity, and they begin to just rid the nation of, of, of innocent life, that is one of the final characterizing marks when the judgment of God falls upon a nation. Verse 5, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Jehoiakim rested with his fathers, and then Jehoiachin, another one. I guess they tried to rhyme all their names there. Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of the land anymore for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. In other words, the Bible is implying at this point now Babylon is beginning to weaken 
Egypt, Babylon is truly asserting itself at this point and Egypt is not going to take the world stage because Babylon has continued to win battles and is really winning the war. And at this point, Egypt's starting to, to retreat because it realizes Babylon's power is too much. Verse 8, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months and his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And again, what a sad testament here, third king in a row, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, verse 10, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. Now at this point, chronologically, historically, this is around 597 BC and this is a reference now to the second of three deportations. As I said, the, the conquering of Judah by Babylon and the deportation of the people to be off in the land of Babylon, taken out of the land, happened in three uh, processes. This is now the second deportation of people taken out of the land that we're reading here around 597 BC. As Babylon now comes up, they begin to lay siege against the city of Jerusalem. And verse 11 says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Remember, to besiege the city was to surround it, and they wouldn't let anything go in or anything come out. They would basically just starve the people inside the walls while they had no resources and just weaken them to where they could just go in and easily conquer them. So Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother and his servants and princes and officers ultimately went out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon in the eighth year of his reign took him prisoner carried him out from there and all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. So take notice here. We have indication. We'll see more of this um, as we wrap up our study next week in, in chapter 25 as we close the book where they're taking now out of the house of the Lord the furnishings the things that were made from Solomon's temple. The enemy now is stealing away what are God's good resources, things that were intended to be used for God's good purposes and, and, and God's glory. The enemy is now just taking control of these things and robbing them from the people of God. And, and this is why ultimately when we do get to Daniel's book, or if you read it, you'll notice, at the, remember when there's that one drunken party that Belteshazzar is having on one occasion, and everybody's pickled and drunk, and all of a sudden he says, hey, go get all those vessels that we stole out of the temple of God. And they start you know, getting drunk out of the gold and silver cups, and that's when God's finger, remember, shows up on the wall. <laughs> and, and, and God says, no, I've had enough of that. I don't care what my people have done. God says, ultimately, I'm the one. And then that's when the finger of God comes. You know, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And uh, God threatens the foreign nation for what they ultimately did. Verse 14 says, and also he carried men into captivity. So again, here's the captivity now taking the people out of Jerusalem. All the captains and the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths and none remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon and the king's mother and his wives, his officers and the mighty men of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000 and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000 and all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. 
And then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremoth Libna. And he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, and he, that he finally, that's God, he finally cast them out from his presence. Now that last phrase where Zedekiah rebels will transition us into chapter 25, which we'll look at next week as Zedekiah rebels at the end here of the fall of Judah. But, but let me just leave you with this thought as we kind of you know, wrap up. Maybe this is a good point to conclude this evening. You notice in the verses above, it's referring to the captivity of the people being taken from Jerusalem. Verse 14 tells us they were taking the captains, the craftsmen, the smiths, it says that they were taking the people, verse 16, who were valiant, again, who were skilled laborers, those who had talents, those, it says, verse 16, who were strong and fit for war. And, and he took away all these who were talented and strong and had potential, and he left all the poor and the weak in the land. Now, this was a common practice when, in the ancient culture, they would conquer lands. This is what typically was done. And it, it makes sense from a uh, logical, pragmatic perspective of what they're trying to do. They take out of a country that they conquer all the people who are sort of the you know cream of the crop, the people who are talented and skilled and intelligent, have great potential and are strong and good warriors. They take them out and bring them back to their land because what does that do? That increases their own nation. Now, all of a sudden, they brought in all these skilled people who are intelligent or strong. So what is that? That bolsters their economy and bolsters their nation because now they brought in all the bankers and talented, skilled people. And they leave all the weak and the poor and those who don't have as much, perhaps, to bring to the table in the land because they figure, well, there's no way they can recoup and rebel. So they're just going to struggle and we'll be able to just maintain control of that territory now. Now, very strategic from a uh, military strategy, but can I just say, as I look at that, the picture of that spiritually is very evident, which is exactly what the devil still does today. The devil looks at those who have incredible potential in the things of the Lord, and you know what he does? He zeroes in on those kind of people. Because the devil's not dumb. The devil recognizes, wow, that gal has incredible potential for the Lord. That gal can show, has such strength and ability to really impact the kingdom of God. That's who I need. Second Timothy 2 says the devil has taken some people captive to do his will. Those are the people the devil's going to put a target on. The devil looks at a, at a man and he says, that man has gifts and potential and calling and an anointing from the Lord. That's who I need to take captive. I need to pursue that individual and look, whether it is our younger generation, which I'm convinced the devil has got a real bead on the younger generation because he sees potential and energy. And look, if Jesus gets a hold of a young person's life or young people's lives with energy and potential and talent and skill and things they can bring to the table for the Lord and Jesus gets a hold of that and channels it, you're talking about amazing things for the kingdom of God. So the devil is going to try and do everything he can to take captive and take control of the younger generation to keep them from being effective for Christ. And the same in all of our lives. 
Listen, just be aware. You want to be useful for Jesus? Put the armor on. Because that's just going to increase the spiritual warfare. We have to be discerning and recognize this reality taking place to stand against it. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. We'll finish up our study there next week in the book. Father, thank you for uh, these chapters in Second Kings, Lord, as we wrap up our study in this book. We just... Ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would continue to give us light and, uh, and clarity for our own lives. And that even as we're just, Lord, worshiping you now, responsively praying and singing and expressing our hearts towards you, we just pray your Spirit will continue to work among us, Lord, that you continue to speak things to us and help us, 